Well, please find Psalm 24 in your Bibles. We're going to continue to study the Psalms this uh, summer. And so Psalm 24 is where we land this week. As we get ready to read that, and I just want you to think about what it means to be in the presence of somebody that's really important. Um, the older I get, kind of the shine falls off of things, and it's like, you know, celebrities are not quite, they're just people just like us, right? Even politicians, I hope they're not people just like us, but they are, you know, we're just all people. Um, some people have more influence, some people have more visibility, but I would like to think that we could go up and just talk to anybody. Um, and so, I mean, think of in our country, like the highest level that you could see is like the president of the United States or a senator or something like that. Um, and in my heart, I can know, well, they're just people like I'm a person. We could have a conversation. Um, the, the issue with, for instance, let's just use the president as an example. It, the issue is not whether I know we're on level ground. The issue is whether they think we're on level ground. So I could not just mosey up to the president of the United States, whoever that might be, knock on the White House door and just come in and start talking. The issue is not, are we equals? The issue is, does that person allow me into their sphere of influence? Are, are, am I able to access them? Am I, you know, could I just w- walk in and do that? And the answer is no, that people have security around them and protocol. You can't just go walk up to the president of the United States. You have to, I guess, at least make an appointment or something. You know, you can't just show up. The The question of Psalm 24 is not, are you okay to stand before some important person? The question in Psalm 24 is, are you okay to stand before a holy God? And just like with a president... It's not about whether I think it's okay. It's what, what does that person say is the protocol? What does that person say is the requirement to be in their presence, to have an audience with them? And 24 asks that question and 24 answers that question. And so that's, I want you to have that sense of what this means. The question being asked is, can we stand before God and with the answer that's given? Because David gives us an answer here. So let's read um, 10 verses. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who has ascended to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation who seek him. Who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your head, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Let's pray. God, Thank you so much for your word. It's convicting this week to me, and I suspect it will be to us as we understand what this question is and what the answer is. Um, God, so give us uh, just open hearts and minds to take in your word. God, I know um, that the gospel is bigger than what this passage says because it puts us in a pretty low place. But God, through Christ, uh, we are able to stand in your presence. So just teach us that truth today. In in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, some of those verses ought to be familiar to you. If you grew up in church, you kind of know them. Um, but let's look at this. Verse, chapter, or point one, acknowledge God's property. Verse one starts by basically telling us that God owns everything. So point A is the reach of God's ownership. When it says in verse one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's a pretty um, broad statement, and it's true. Everything belongs to God. The earth, the globe, the universes, everything in it. You can't look at a bug or a dinner plate or whatever. You can't look at anything that does not belong to God. The world and everyone who live in it. That means you and I belong to God. He is our owner, if you will. He, there, there's other verses that say similar things to other Psalm 50, for instance, says, Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours and yours is the earth. You founded the world and all that's in it. And Ezekiel 18 says, Everyone belongs to me. Or the King James says, All souls are mine. We belong to God. He And I'll, I'll tell you why here in a second, because David goes on to tell it. But just think of the implication, just of that alone, that God's ownership extends to you and to me, that my life, my thoughts, my actions, my time, my money, everything that I do belongs to God. That means that I should do what God tells me to do. We should obey God for sure. It also means that we should not sin. Paul will use this kind of thinking in Corinthians. He says, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. It's why we worship God. It's why we, as the psalmist says, we kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's why we tell others about God, because everyone belongs to God. And that's why John Piper famously said, evangelism exists because uh, worship doesn't. For every, every person that has strayed from God they should, with their lives and with their voices, be a worshiper of God. But we all rebel, and that doesn't happen. And so think of if you had a bag of very valuable something, and it's, it dropped on the ground and scattered everywhere, and then you spent your time collecting those back to your bag. Evangelism is kind of like that. There are people all over the globe that belong to God but have, not, have chosen not to follow him. And evangelism is saying, here, you belong to God, and putting them back together, putting them back with God. And so for just verse 1 tells us all those things. Well, it's not just the reach of his ownership. Point B is the reason for his ownership. And I've kind of alluded to this. Verse 2, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. He made everything. He is the creator of everything. And so he gives us life. He gave us who we are. He's the potter. We're the clay. It's the um, equivalent, if you will, of a copyright. We... Uh, if you write something, a song, or produce something, you get a copyright on that thing, which means you are the one who created that. It was your idea. And that thing, that song, let's use that, that song can only be used like you choose to let it be used. So, for instance, here at church, we have to have what's called a copyright license so that when we sing these songs that somebody else wrote, it can go off into YouTube world and they say, okay, you paid the person that created that, and you're using it in a way that they say is appropriate. Okay, that's the copyright laws. Well, we are God, we are, we are copyrighted by God. It was his idea to make us, he created us, and by the, the one who's the copywriter, 
he gets the right to say how we should be used, how we should, where we should function and all that kind of stuff. Now we rebel. We do copyright infringement all the time because we just do what we want to do and we don't consider, no, he's the one that created us. He has the right to tell us what to do. All creation except mankind signifies this, right? The, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That Psalm goes on to say, but there's men that don't. That's why they need the word of God to line it up. And so, when Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it means we're not doing what God created us to do. We certainly don't reflect who he is. And so he is not just owner of everything. The reason is because he's created everything, including your life and in my life. Secondly, ascending to, the God, to God's presence. So we know everything is his property. Now here's the question that's asked here. How... Who can stand before a holy God like that? The one who created everything? The one who's totally perfect? Well, the question is asked there in verse 3. Who can ascend to the holy mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy presence? That's the question. And that question is not about stars and planets. It's about who? You and me. Who is qualified to stand in his presence? So A is the presence of the holy Psalm 15 asks the same question, and I'll read more of it later. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And as I said at the introduction, it's not a question of, do I think I'm qualified to stand before God? It's a question of, does God think I'm qualified to stand before God? It's as the creator, as the copyright holder, he is the one that gets to set that standard. And again, he's holy and he's perfect. And if a holy, perfect God allows unholiness in his presence, well, then he's no longer holy. We've defiled that. And so the standard's pretty high, as I think we'll see. Hosea will rebuke the nation of Israel because they keep turning from God. And at some point they say, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your maker. I don't know if you've ever said that to anybody or had that said to you, but that's a, that's a threat. It's like, I'm going to kill you. It's not just you're going to die, though. It's going to, you're going to go be face-to-face with the one who made you with a purpose in mind. And I just want you to think for a second the, the soberness of that, that you will someday meet your maker. Okay? Not just run into him, but be accountable to what you've done with his creation. Well, the answer is found in verse 4, and it's my sub-point, a pure heart. The question is, who can stand in the presence of God? The answer is somebody with a pure heart, okay? Now, we're going to really dig into this for a second because I want you to know something. This should, I think, um, convict you in many, many ways. But stick with me. It's been very convicting to me. But I'm telling you, when you stick with it and you realize the true issue, you can begin to make some headway in that area and actually find hope there and ultimately see Christ there. And so don't check me out here because I, I don't think you will. I know you well enough to know that you'll, you'll get what I'm trying to uh, tell you. So verse 4 says, The one who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. And in the NIV, there's a, actually a subnote there, a footnote that says, or swear falsely. And I'll get into all of that. So that's the question. Who can stand? The answer is somebody with those attributes. Somebody who has a clean heart, I mean, clean hands and a pure heart. And again, from Psalm 15, it asks it in the same way. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live in your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless. The one who does what is righteous. Who speaks the truth from their heart. 
whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. That's the kind of description of the person that God says is qualified to be in his presence. Well, let's break that down. One, to be in God's presence, you need clean hands. Okay, not hygiene here, not COVID. You need to not do things wrong. You need to, there was a ritual cleansing of the hands in David's day, but it's also just the sense that you come into this having no sin on your hands. You're not acting in sinful ways. You, you must be fighting sin in your life. You must not have sin to your account. Paul is famously, and I, I, I find myself repeatedly saying this, he was the one who said, I'm the worst of sinners. But he had every right, he said, to say, I'm pretty good. I've done all the ritual stuff. I was a Pharisee. I've done all that. But I'm the worst of sinners. Okay? So the first thing that happens, and I'm going to not ask for a show of hands, but metaphorically ask for a show of hands. The first requirement of you and I standing in the presence of the Holy God is we have done nothing wrong. Okay? I think... Nobody here would say, well, that's me, right? James Vernon McGee said, well, that leaves me out, okay? So we're already done, and I've only got one of the four on our list here. We have all sinned, it says. We've all, and we don't just say, we, we know that. Well, the second point is a chaste heart. Now, this, if I, if I were going to tell you, you get one thing out of today, it's this point, the sub point two. And I use the word chaste on, important, think, uh, on purpose. Think of the word chastity absolutely pure okay never defiled nothing wrong with it god's word is telling us right now to be in the presence of a holy god we have to have never sinned and our hearts got to be chaste we've got to have a pure heart okay now trust me on this i hope you trust me on this this is the most convicting part of this it's also the most helpful part for me i I want you to know i've been living this this week trying to uh, Every day I'm like, what does it mean to have clean hand, pure hearts, not fear, uh, swear falsely? What do these things mean? And I think there's great help here in this sense. That if I can identify what the real problem is, I can make some headway in that area. And I can also see what Jesus has done for me in that area. Okay? We would all probably admit, point one, we've all got unclean hands. I hope you feel the weight of, I guarantee you've got an impure heart. It is, as Jesus would say, what comes out of the heart that makes somebody good. It's the inside of the bowl, not the outside that's important. This is getting to the motives of things, not just what we do. Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart because they will what? Because they will see God who can stand in his presence, those who have pure hearts. And so the question to ask when not, not just evaluating where you stand but also how to live life in a way that honors God. Where I stand is, I might fool myself even a little bit that I've got pretty clean hands, but I am regularly convicted that I don't have a pure heart. That means if I go about my day and I think about what I might do or what I might look at or what I might say or what I might not do that I'm supposed to do, it's got beyond my hands because I may never act that out, but my heart's already convicting me because guess what? My, something in there wants to do that thing that God says not to do. And the deeper, most more probing question 
If you're serious about wanting to live a life that honors God, the deeper, most serious, most probing question is not, should I or should I not do that thing? But is this coming from a pure heart? See, there are very, quote-unquote, innocent things that I could rationalize and justify and say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, but I know it doesn't come from a pure place in my heart. There are places I could go and things I could say that just feed something in me. And I know nobody would even notice, but it's not coming from a pure heart. Man, this just knocks you down. Okay? I'm not done yet. But right now, none of us are doing well with the idea, can we stand in the presence of a holy God? Next it says, we have to have a confident hope. It says in verse 4, one who does not trust an idol. Okay, The word idol there is in the language a vain thing, a useless thing, a futile thing. So we don't have statues probably floating around, but we do place our trust all the time in things that are really vain, useless, worthless. Anything that, you know, power, wealth, health, influence, all the things that we want to chase after. Become idols, because think about it, if something very valuable to you that you're hoping will always be there goes away and your you know, life kind of gets turned upside down, it reveals that you have some hope in that that should have been in God. And so I can think of all kinds of things and that if that goes away, I, won't, I don't know what I do. Well, hopefully the answer is I trust God, right? And God chose to allow me to have that for a while and now chose, chooses not to, but I trust that he knows what he's doing. I trust my identity comes from him, all those things. His provision. Matthew Henry puts it this, who can stand in the presence of God? Those hearts who are not carried out inordinately towards the wealth of this world, the praise of men or the delights of the senses, who do not choose these things as their portion nor reach after them because... Excuse me, because they believe that they are vanity, uncertain, and unsatisfying. Okay? If you're honest, and we'll get to that in a second. If you're honest, is can you identify that there are things in your life that you really, you're really trusting that that's always going to be there? Okay? So, so far, to me, I've struck out. I only get three strikes, but there's actually another pitch coming. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I trust things that are really vain. And then fourthly, the question is, do I have complete honesty? When it says there are swear by a false God, this is where that footnote comes in. Do I swear falsely? Do I always say the truth? Psalm 15 says, do I always keep my promises? Hebrews 4.13 says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the one of whom we must give an account. You can lie to other people pretty easily. You can even lie to yourself pretty easily. You cannot lie to God. And so to be in the presence of a pure, holy God, here's what this verse tells us. I must have clean hands. Never done anything wrong. I have to have a pure heart. Strike two, right? I must only trust God. And I must always tell the truth. Anybody want to raise their hand right now and say, you feel qualified to stand in the presence of a holy God? Please don't. Oh, you know better than that. It was a kid, by the way. There's no, we're good. Kids, we do this in, in preschool. If you, anybody, and every hand goes up. They don't even know what the question is yet. Yes, me, 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 me. 
Well, what this does is what the Bible says. It, it shows us that we're unqualified before God. We don't have the right to stand before him. This, this is not in your notes. It's not going to be on the screen. But if I were to add, and I should have, I thought about it at 830 this morning, a fifth sub point, I would put Christ's holiness. Okay. I want to read those two verses that we've just kind of delved into. But instead of thinking of your life, I want you to think of Jesus. Okay. Who may ascend to the holy mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? The one who's clean, who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or vain things, and who swears by a false god or always tells the truth. Jesus Christ did that. You understand that? His hands were clean. His heart was pure. He only looked to God for his confidence. He always told the truth. That's what sets him apart from us. Where we fail in four areas, he succeeded in four areas. Now, here's where it gets, this is the gooder, the gooder part. Here's the good part. If you're a Christian, the Bible tells us that Christ lived a life for you. He didn't just die for your sins. He gives you his righteousness. So I want to ask a question I asked you before and only one kid. He got it right after all. In Christ, how many people here are qualified to stand in the presence of a holy God? That's the gospel. On my own, I have unclean hands and impure heart. I trust things I shouldn't trust. I don't tell the truth. In Christ, I can say, I have clean hands, a pure heart. I don't trust idols. I don't swear falsely. We are told over and over, and Titus says it this way, He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. There's a parable I think we covered at one point about a, a, a wedding feast where a man shows up with his own clothes. And remember, the king provided clothes for the guest. And the king comes out and says, what's that guy doing and not the... He's not dressed for the occasion because he was wearing his own righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ. So this is wonderful news if you get to the good news part of it. Because all of us, I think, failed one, two, three, four. Christ lived up to one, two, three, four. And when we get saved, he comes and gives us, guess what? He gives us, he acts as if we've never sinned. We're, we're not, no condemnation. He gives us a new heart to desire the things of God. He does all those things for us. And so point C is the privileges of holiness. Well, if that's true of you, if you've given your life to Christ, there's some blessings that come from that. That's what verse five talks about. They will receive blessing from God. So if you are the kind of person that can stand in the presence of God because you have clean hands and a pure heart and down the list because of Christ and his mercy, then there's blessings that come with that. Now, there are practical blessings. If you live a life that God, that honors God as his maker, as he is your maker, holding the copyright to your life, and you, you live your life in a way that he intended, there will be these practical blessings to that. For, by and large, life is better when you honor God. But there's also, as we just covered, not just a practical side to that. There is this righteous, we are blessed because we're in Christ, not just the way it's, it's lived out. Because as verse 5 goes on to say, and we receive vindication from God our Savior. 
the, the wording there in the Hebrew, vindication is one way to say it. It means we receive righteousness from God. It's, it's, he views us where we've been vindicated. It's as if we did have clean hands and pure hearts. That we have this vindication. And so Jesus would say this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. It is what God does for us when we trust Christ. He gives us those clean hands and pure hearts. So point three, and this is kind of the application point before the application point, but it says in verse six, such is the generation who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So point A is, do you want the king of glory in your life? Do you want, are you seeking him? And when it says the generation, so that kind of group of people is the kind of people that seek after God. Seek me and find me, he says, right? And so the question before us is, are you the kind of people that wants to have God in your life? Do you want him to be uh, blessing you? Do you, want, do you want to have a clean heart and a, and, I'm sorry, clean hands and pure hearts? Do you want to trust him only? Do you want those things? And when it says generation, it's, not some, it's something that you have to do for yourself. So it's not like, my grandma went to church all the time, so I'm good, right? Every new generation, every individual has to come to that point where they say, yes, I want the king of glory in my life. And I'll get to who the king of glory here is in a second because I answer that too. But point B, I think, is a little, I don't want to call it another level, but another nuance of this. Not only do you want the king of glory, but do you welcome the king of glory? I'm convinced there's a lot of people that want the blessings, want what's, what's good about God in their life, but they don't welcome him as their king. Go back to the copyright issue or the potter and the clay issue or illustration. If I want to be the best pottery that God can make, then guess what? I let his hands mold me into the shape that he wants to mold me, right? And there's a lot of people that want to be a really cool pot, but they don't want the maker to mold them into that shape. There's some people that want to be a really cool song for God, but they don't want to sing according to his lyrics. And so it's one thing to say, I want God in my life. It's a totally different thing to say, I I welcome him in my life as the king of glory. That's what the psalmist is getting at. And so there's a redundancy here because it's a song and they sing this back and forth probably as the ark was coming into the temple. Lift up your heads, this is verse 7, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Verse 9, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The call is for a city here to open the gates and welcome the presence of God. That was true with the Ark of the Covenant probably coming into Jerusalem. I want you to think, too, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. city really didn't open its gates for him at that point, you know, totally. I want you to think of him ascending to heaven. So think of that. Jesus left the glories of heaven, became a man, lived with clean hands, pure hearts, all that stuff. And then he would return. Do you think heaven welcomed him back with open arms and open doors? You bet that God did, right? But I also want you to think, and this is where it becomes personal. Have you opened the doors of your life in this way, welcoming the king of glory into your city, into your home, into your heart? Again, not just wanting God around, but you welcome him as your king. That's, that, that's part of the picture the, the Bible talks about, about accepting Christ and bringing him in. Well, point C begs the question, if you want him in your life and you welcome him in your life, who is he? Who is this king of glory? 
And you can picture this as verse 7 and 9 said, open the doors. Verse 8 and 10 answer that question. And they basically say, well, who, who knocks? <laughs> I, I, you say who's knocking at the door. Now it's who, who my ring just told me somebody's at the door, right? We naturally, when we hear a knock at the door or a ding or whatever, say, who's there? And it goes like this. This is not a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? The king. The king who? The king of glory. The one who created you. The one who has right on your life. And the one, by the way, and this is how this story goes, who has conquered death and sin and all those things that separate. It's the victorious coming of the king back into the city. And so it's the king of glory, it says in verse 18. He is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is he? The king of glory. This is verse 10. The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. That's the picture of Jesus Christ. And someday every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will know that he won over victory, or victory over sin, over death, and all those over the grave. But this all points us to Jesus, and it's a matter of asking him to be our Lord and Savior. F.B. Meyer says this, and it's about to close. The psalm is this psalm is accomplished in us when Jesus enters our hearts as king to reign. And it will have full realization when the earth and its population become or welcome him as their king. That's what this psalm story tells. So here's the real application, I guess. One, have you acknowledged that God is the creator? Can you get that in your mind that he made everything? The earth and all that is in it. The world and everyone who lives in it. That means you. That means me. He's the creator. He's the one who holds the copyright on your life and has this authority to say, I can use you like that and not like that. Secondly, have you accepted Christ? Have you welcomed him into your home, into the heart? Have you opened wide the gates and said, welcome in, king of glory. You have the right to do with me what you need to do. And thirdly, and this might sound a little weird, but are you advancing Christ-likeness? Meaning, I, may, I hope I made the point that your clean hands, your chaste heart, your confident hope, your complete honesty come from Christ and not you. Okay? That's how you stand in the presence of a holy God. But Paul is very clear about this. Because those things are true, guess what? We ought to be pursuing clean hands. We ought to be pursuing a chaste heart putting our hope in God and God alone and being completely honest with ourselves, with God and with everybody else. It doesn't mean, you, Paul would put it this way, so since that's true, should we just keep sinning? No. We should try to have clean hands. And so I'm going to hopefully help, help you here, help you nail this down. This is what God's been working on in my life. Are you doing things you know you should not be doing? Is there sin in your life you need to stop? Then you don't have clean hands positionally yes you do in christ if you're a christian but you don't you know better okay and then second and again this gets again no pun intended to the heart of this do you have a chaste heart when you think about doing those things you know i to do don't ask the question is it right is it wrong say does this come from a pure heart that will save you from even getting close to doing things you shouldn't do and again, it may be the most innocent, innocent things in the world, but if you know that's not coming from a place that says, I want to honor God with my life, then don't go there. Don't say that. Don't look at that. Don't read that. You know what I mean? Just don't do those things because it's not coming from a pure heart. Do you have a confident hope? Can you really say that, man, God's all I need and all I got? That's, we have to rest in that. 
That's the rock we build our life on, not the sinking sand of everything else. And are you being completely honest? And I'll give you three little points here. Are you being completely honest with other people? The church should be, I hope it is, a place where we can, we've said it over and over. In fact, this last week, somebody commented, this is the first church I went to where the preacher didn't act like he was better than everybody else. I'm worse than all of you, and I know it. And I hope you have that same attitude. It's not about me. This has got to be a place where we can be completely honest with one another and say, I'm struggling with this. And frankly, if you, after listening to this, you might say, I'm not just struggling with my, my heart's messed up, right? Paul would write a whole chapter in Romans about this. I don't do what I want to do. So I hope you're being honest with others. I hope you're being honest with yourself. It's easy not to be. It's easy to justify and rationalize and look real strong at somebody else's sin and just ignore it in your own life. That's why the word of God is important because it cuts, it says, right to the heart of things. It it divides what's good and bad. And so I hope you're being completely honest with yourself. And I hope you're being completely honest with God, most importantly, I suppose, because, again, he knows whether you are or not. You can fool them, you can fool yourself, but you're not going to fool him. Okay, And so I hope you're at the place where you just you want to be just open before God. Confess your sins, and he is eager to forgive you and give you the righteousness of Christ. It's the most amazing story. So as we wrap, you need to know Christ, and you need to live in that truth of what it is. We're going to sing this song, and it's really going to be our closing prayer today. I'll come up and say amen, but I want you to view this last song as a prayer you know it. You could probably guess what it is. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. God, let us be the generation that seeks, that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. Let's pray. God, we're going to sing that, and I pray that it's an honest prayer. God, this has been um, very convicting, but also refreshing this week for me to know that I do not qualify to stand in your holy presence who can stand before you not me i don't have clean hands i don't have a pure heart god i don't trust you only and i don't always tell the truth but god i know that jesus did those things that he had clean hands and a pure heart that he only trusted you and he always told the truth and god because of your mercy and grace I stand before you knowing I'm qualified to be in your holy presence. God, there are some here today who may be testing in their own righteousness. They may think their hands are pretty clean and that their heart is okay and the lies they tell are justified. And God, would you just wipe that away from their their thought process and help them see they need you. They need to open open wide their gates and welcome the King of glory. Thank you, God, that you give us these things. And as we leave here, as we pray this, as we sing this, may it just come from the most honest place in our hearts, God. Give us clean hands and pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.